This is episode 10, The Art of Persuasion, with your co-hosts, Michael and Ryan. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Intelligence. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, this is the podcast that explores the field of private sector intelligence and how intelligence helps organizations navigate risk and realize opportunity. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm joined again by my good friend and co-host, Michael. We are now at episode number 11, and Michael, we're calling this one The Art of Persuasion. What I love about this one is it represents our second how-to episode. And for everyone listening, our how-to episodes try to highlight a particular skill or area of expertise that we think is really important for being an effective intelligence practitioner. And so we share our experiences and observations on how to improve Obviously, we don't have all the answers, but I think we've learned some hard lessons along the way, some good lessons along the way, and we're excited to share those with everybody. So welcome back, my friend, and any opening comments? No, Ryan, how are you doing? Hey to everyone out in the audience. And no, I'm excited to have this conversation because I do think that persuasion as well as the bigger interpersonal skill set is critical to Intel professionals. You know, when we were doing the, the background on this episode and, and doing our research, I know that we had a lot of conversations around influence versus persuasion. They can be used interchangeably. So I'm sure we might end up using them interchangeably here. But when we say persuasion, what we mean, especially with the art of persuasion, is convincing others to agree with your point of view or to follow a course of action, whether you're trying to drive support for an initiative that you might have or getting others on board with your point of view. I think for some of you listening, this is probably an innate quality and comes naturally. I think for the rest of us, maybe persuasion skills can certainly be learned and developed over time. And uh, I think that's what we really want to talk about today is how you can get better at those skills. And then our inspiration for this episode was, Michael, one of your favorite articles. It's titled The Art of Persuasion Hasn't Changed in 2000 Years by Carmine Gallo. And it was featured in Harvard Business Review in July of 2019. And so we'll make sure to highlight that at the end again. But I think that's a great article for everyone listening. And speaking to that, I want to highlight just a couple of clips or a couple of quotes from that to to sort of set the stage for everyone. So the first one goes a little something like this. Quote, ideas are the currency of the 21st century. The ability to persuade, to change hearts and minds, is perhaps the single greatest skill that will give you a competitive edge in the knowledge economy, an age where ideas matter more than ever, end quote. So that's the first one, and I I love that one. But the second one I think I like even more. It starts off like this, quote, persuasion is no longer a soft skill. It's a fundamental skill that can help you attract investors, sell products, build brands, inspire teams, and trigger movements, end quote. So I really love that one. And then if we sort of apply that to our role of persuasion in our daily lives, a couple things that everyone might consider. Number one, you might be looking for a job in the field right now, and you need to persuade a recruiter or a hiring manager to hire you. Number two, you might be a program manager 
and you're trying to persuade your boss why the team needs more headcount or more resources. Number three, you might be trying to persuade internal customers or clients why they need to choose the intelligence team for expertise or products or services or what have you. And number four, and to get really specific, you might have found yourself trying to persuade your organization that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and they needed to take a specific plan of action. So that was me setting the stage for our first question, which is really around why it's so important to be persuasive as an intelligence practitioner. So Michael, what are your general thoughts around everything I just said? And then where do you rank being persuasive in terms of required skills for an intelligence practitioner? Yeah, Ryan, great setup. And um, I mean, I think persuasion is critical. And I mean, one of the tricky parts about persuasion is, you know, I think especially in today's day and age, we're, we're always trying to get along and be a collaborative work group. But there's still going to be times, whether it's any of the types of negotiation we describe, where there's going to be limited resources, limited capabilities. And uh, you never want to zero sum game. But you're, you're going to find yourself in a situation where both parties are going to have to give a little. So, uh, you know, I think it's critical to be able to understand what you need or your team needs, what the person or stakeholder that you're negotiating with, what their, what their needs are and what they're willing to give up, and then devising a plan on how to form a, a plan where you can both work together and achieve your own goals. Yeah, you're hitting on a few things there, some tactics that we'll we'll transition to next. And we'll try to give everybody some very specific sort of concrete takeaways that they can use. And then the idea that sometimes there might be a negative connotation to the act of persuasion or the word persuasion. I think maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. Do you feel as if this is something, though, that should be at the top of everyone's list? And this is one of those skills that just has to be refined and improved consistently? I think it can't be overstated the importance of uh, persuasion. And again, uh, you know, I, I think one of the descriptions I've seen is persuasion as a learning and negotiating process that involves phases of discovery, preparation, and dialogue. So, you know, I think we we can break down each of those steps as we go along. But you can be the the best intelligence professional on your team or in the industry, but if you can't persuade those around you either either to contribute to your goal or to gain additional resources, then you're going to be limited by by your own skills there. I, I love talking about these skills and how important they are. And they're sort of adjacent to some other ones that we, we've talked about in the past and we need to talk about going forward, whether it's how to build, build your own personal brand or your team's brands, how to market yourself, how to create internal demand for your products and services, et cetera. And what's funny is these are some of the things that we sometimes we don't want to talk about or maybe we don't feel so good talking about because there's some sort of negative connotation. And again, we'll circle back to that comment in a little bit, but you know, this is the reality of the private sector. And we have to have these skills to, to be successful for various reasons that I think we've you know covered in a lot of our earlier episodes. So I'm looking forward to diving into this a little bit more. Uh, why don't we talk about some very specific tactics? Because, you know, you and I both love to give concrete examples, things that people can use like today or tomorrow. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. Of course, we don't have all the answers. We're just trying to provide some perspectives based on our experiences. So, you know, really looking forward, really looking forward to seeing what others, you know, say about this episode and, and what they can contribute as well. But 
Um, I'll turn it over to you. And maybe what we can do is sort of this idea of, okay, what's behind door number one? <laughs> and you can lead off with a, with a tactic or something that you think people can use. And then maybe I'll add my own flavor or commentary on, on that one. And we'll just go from there until we knock out four or five tactics. Yeah, sure, Ryan. I think just one more thing I'd like to say before we get too in the weeds is an author, William Urey. He's written uh, books, Getting Past No, and co-authored How to Get to Yes. And, uh, you know, it's it's, it's something uh, I forgot. They've been around 30 years. You know, I probably started reading them 10 years ago, and I, I kind of still reflect back to them because they're such good resources for this. But one thing they're saying is, you know, when you think of persuasion and then you're actually entering into the negotiation you know, people people have different ways of looking at it. And I think the two main ones that he describes are people almost look at it like a like a steel cage or a boxing match. Like they, they gotta go in and, and it's gotta be a zero sum game and they gotta walk out with one hundred percent of what they went into the meeting wanting. And then there's the other side where people are like, let me just like get along to, you know, to make sure we're all collaborating. So I'm willing to give up all my criteria, which, you know, ultimately the best way in any negotiation is, is to try to have an amicable agreement where everybody walks away happy and you you're building trust and establishing stronger relationships for future collaboration. So, you know, I think in persuasion in general, that's always your goal is to try to figure out a way where both parties can walk away feeling satisfied and feeling like they can work together. And uh, I think that the first uh, example I'll give is transparency. And, uh, you know, just something I've always tried to do uh, when I was trying to negotiate or persuade somebody was was try to go in as open as possible into what I was trying to achieve, whether it was to get a certain product or to get a certain project accepted or to get additional resources. Because, you know, sometimes when you're trying to persuade someone, they somehow might feel that you're trying to be cohesive and pull one over on them. So it's important to to really enter a negotiation when you're trying to persuade somebody, knowing that you're trying to do it as a team rather than one winner takes all. Yeah. And I think related to that are the traits of authentic, you know, authenticity, sincerity. Those are so important in today's world. So I really like that one as a first one. And then just to take a step back really quickly um, in terms of trying to clarify what you said about being persuasive is not a zero sum game. I think that's a great takeaway as well, because you're trying to have a win-win situation on your hands. And I think if you go into it with that mindset, it's, it's not as difficult. It's just, there's a more positive outlook to that type of mindset than it is going into something as if you're an attorney going up against another attorney where one of you has to walk away a winner and one of you has to walk away a loser, which is not a very pleasant experience. So I love how you frame that. So from my perspective, one of the first tactics that I've personally experienced in terms of you know, being effective at being persuasive is really developing an executive presence or executive voice. And, and maybe the easiest way to say that is to just be confident. You know, I think being confident is really important a really important aspect of being persuasive. And, you know, whether this is true or not, I think people naturally assume that confidence equates to skill. We know that's not always the case, but for the most part, I think people naturally assume that. And so I would say, don't be afraid to, to be confident. Don't be afraid to be bold. If you think something's going to happen, say it's going to happen, you know, say it with conviction. And 
I want to talk about something really quickly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think this is going to be slightly provocative. I know not everyone is going to agree with me. In fact, some people are going to say, no, you're wrong. We shouldn't do it this way. But I think we need to be careful about constantly adding qualifiers to our speech. Like, I think this, or maybe this. In intelligence terminology, the use of estimative language or words of estimative probability, depending on our background, you know, we may have grown up in this world where we say something like, we're almost certain that Russia is going to invade Ukraine, or it's probable that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And in both of those cases, there are actual percentages assigned to, to the judgment of likelihood. So, I just think we need to be careful of that. I think we need to be more bold and more confident. And to use Ukraine as an example, in my organization, we said, you know, we didn't say that it's highly likely or we didn't say that, you know, we assign a a 70% probability that this is going to happen. We said, Ukraine is going to invade Russia and we need to be ready for it. And I know that sounds very bold, but I think, you know, the worst case that could happen there. Well, from my perspective, again, not everyone's going to agree, but, you know, the worst case from my perspective is even if you get it wrong, you've sort of dusted off the business continuity plans and some of the other contingency plans. You've maybe exercised your scenario planning. You've exercised some of your crisis management muscle. So there's some real value that can come out of that, even if they wouldn't have invaded. So I just think we need to be more bold, more more confident. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So, yeah, I'd strongly agree. You know, I think I think you know in some of our research for this episode, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at a note that I had to myself. It's a kind of a paraphrase, but credibility is a cornerstone of effective persuading. Without it, work can be tough. And I think that goes to what kind of what you were just saying. How it's important to to be credible, have a certain level of respect, and and have people understand that you know even if you're not an expert, you understand the topic and. You know, I think one of the ways I was seeing in in some of the research I was doing was one of the ways to do this is to really try to meet one-on-one with the person that you're trying to persuade. You know, sometimes, you know, I think even day-to-day life, sometimes, you know, if I tell you something, you tell to the next person, no matter how well you're listening to me, as active listening as possible, things still get lost in translation. So, if you know you have to negotiate with someone and persuade them to see things maybe slightly different than they already are or how they intended to, it's really best to not only establish credibility, but also to establish a one-on-one relationship so they can gain confidence in you as a professional. I like that as well. So is credibility, establishing credibility, is that your number two? Yes. Okay, perfect. I wanted to speak to that as well. So I'll add something really quick. I want to go back to my first point, though, because if you're listening right now and you happen to be an introvert, I think what can be incredibly frustrating is sometimes it may seem like the loudest voice in the room commands the most attention. You know, so those who are maybe overly confident, even when they have no idea what they're talking about. But I would tell everyone who is an introvert, you know, don't despair because I think there's another superpower that you can call on if you aren't bold and you aren't overly confident. And Michael, it's what you just said. And it's about having that credibility or perhaps, you know, similarly just demonstrating expert knowledge. And so having a reputation is maybe someone who gets things done or someone who has a track record of success. I think that's going to really build your credibility advantage and and others are going to seek you out. And then I try to shy away from the military examples, but I, I think this will resonate with people, even if they weren't in the military. But, you know, as background, 
I'm an intelligence officer, excuse me, an infantry unit, a combat arms unit. And so imagine a situation, everyone, where, you know, intelligence is sort of a, it's an area of expertise, but it's not predominantly what the unit does or focuses on. So, you know, it was my job to try to be persuasive, to have others listen to me because I feel like I can add value, take care of them, perhaps even save their lives. So, you know, I'm looking around trying to figure out how I can be persuasive. And so I'm trying to think about what's important to the people that I'm spending my time with. And in that type of unit, physical fitness was extremely important. And being able to be proficient with your weapon or your weapon system was extremely important. So from my perspective, then I want to be as, you know, do as well as I possibly can from a physical fitness perspective and in shooting my weapon, because I feel as if you know, I'm going to have that credibility advantage. And then people are going to look to me and say, okay, you know, maybe this is somebody I can relate to and I can turn to and, and seek advice from. So for all of you listening, just try to figure out what can give you a credibility advantage in your organization, whatever that may look like. I think that's one key takeaway. So, and then the other thing I would say about this, sometimes we, we forget this because we're always focused on what's the next thing or, If we're in our organizations and we're trying to move up in the world, we're so focused on advancement um, and getting new opportunities. But I, I think we have to make sure that we don't forget that we have to just do our job really, really well. Whatever our job is, it it doesn't matter what it is, but execute on that really, really well. So there's absolutely no questions from anyone else about how effective you are. That in turn, I think, builds credibility, which leads you to being more persuasive and people wanting to come to you. So so I really appreciate that. Number two, establish credibility. I think that's a great one in trying to be more persuasive. So what's next on your list? I'm anxious to hear. Uh, It's a tough call, but I think I'm going to go with frame for common ground. And, you know, whether I was in an international business role or in different roles in the intelligence community where I was dealing with people cross-culturally, and we might be from extremely different backgrounds, so we might have different goals, but, you know, the, the key point is to actively listen, hear what their concerns are for a certain objective, and then really try to frame the discussion for persuading them on how it benefits both of you. Ultimately, most people, for better or for worse, are, are personally driven, so you can't go to somebody and say, well, look, this is really important to me. This is why we should do this. You have to listen and say, okay, I know it's important to me, but I'm really listening to this person. They're explaining how either their supervisor wants this to happen or or they have a timeline that they need to meet. So it's really trying to find common ground and saying, okay, I understand where they're coming from. Here's where I'm coming from. You know, if we work together or if you give up this, I can give you this and we can kind of work through this together. And, you know, so it's, uh, you could be the most credible person going back to uh, my previous example, but if you can't frame common ground with the party you're trying to persuade, then you're probably not going to get too far. I love that one. And that's a good segue to to my next one. And I promise for everyone listening, we did not coordinate these. So I I love that we're sort of thinking alike here. My next one is going to be around the idea of always know your audience. But I think it's going to be very uh, familiar or similar to what you're talking about here. So I think the idea of, of learning over the years not to push for what it is that you want or for an instant agreement if someone's personality style just makes that unlikely. So from my perspective, I'm, I'm definitely a processor. So if somebody is to bring me something 
you know, I'm, I may not be able to decide on the spot unless I have to. I like to think about it. You know, I, I sort of break it down, analyze it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, for, for somebody who brings something to me, it's good for them to know me as that, you know, as, as their audience and in terms of that's the way I work. I have pretty strong opinions on certain things as it relates to our work. And I think some of the best guidance I've ever received over the years, and I think this is really what you're talking about, is you have to meet people where they are. You know, I got that advice from a mentor just a couple of years ago. So really listening or putting yourself in their shoes to understand where they're coming from and what they need, which I think in turn helps you make a better argument and be more persuasive. And then the other sort of aspect of, of this particular tactic and what I was thinking about, if you want to persuade people, and I think especially if you're interacting with, let's say, an executive or, or a senior leader, it's just really important to be concise and to be prepared. I think that will help you immensely in terms of being persuasive. We all know, we've heard this a million times, but it's true, the most precious commodity of an executive or a business leader is their time. They don't have a lot of it, so we have to make the most of it. And then as James Tunkey told us on episode 10, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, when dealing with board, board members or senior leaders, you just have to do your homework. You know, you have to prepare at another level. And so I think, again, being very concise and being very prepared is part of knowing your audience, which in turn can make you more persuasive. All right. Any thoughts on that or, or what do you have up next? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with everything. And I guess this is kind of next, but it also kind of builds on the last two. But, you know, one of the things, you know, in the article that we're referring to, it's um, they hit on connect on an emotional level. And, you know, I think that's so huge because it, it kind of ties in everything we've said. But if you approach if you approach it from a rapport building sense, I'm just trying to think uh, even times when I was in the embassy working in the defense attache office, there were there's always like interagency rivalries and there'd be some law enforcement or other organizations that weren't necessarily motivated to help the department of defense, but you know, it's twofold, you know, kind of tying everything together. You know, I had to establish credibility. I had to find the common ground and then ultimately I had to be likable. So, you know, and even if people, you, you can't always connect with them a hundred percent, but you know, if you, if you can find something that you have in common, just kind of establish an emotional appeal to why they should listen to your persuading methods and also just be likable so they can say, you know what, I could say no, but why wouldn't I help this person? You know, I think he's, he or she has been good overall. And uh, I think it's worth like giving a little bit now to build a relationship so we can move forward. It's as you said, Michael, I think you have to make it personal and let's be honest, you have to be well-liked. Being well-liked helps you be more persuasive. There's no doubt about it, especially in the private sector, you know, especially in the private sector. I'll just reemphasize that. And so I'm not sure if you've sort of experienced that as you, you know, made the transition from the government and the military into the private sector, but it's important to be well-liked and it, it's also important to really invest in your customer, potential customers to get to know them. As you said, I think depending on your organization's culture, and you, you talked about this at the top, but I hate to say it, but it might be one of the most or the most important aspect of becoming persuasive. And the reason for that is when someone feels connected to us, 
they're just much more likely to listen to our advice and our point of view on things. So investing in those relationships is so critical. I think this also underscores things that we've talked about, you know, numerous times on previous episodes, which is why intelligence is a participatory sport and that you have to work closely with and alongside your customers and trying to be persuasive through the process of just, you know, let's say sending out products via email that's just not enough. That's not going to get it done in terms of being persuasive. So, you know, to be successful, you just have to understand what they care about and what they expect from you. It's going to go a long way. Yeah, no, great point. And just one thing I've had, you know, it's funny, I think is, uh, you know, you get more experience. This becomes a little more natural. You become more aware of it. But, you know, I think part of a follow on to that is emotional intelligence and understanding your own blind spots and how other people might perceive you. Because, you know, I've been in situations, whether I was a junior person on the team or I was the team leader or division chief, whatever role I was in. And, you know, you might try to persuade somebody or negotiate and they, I mean, they just don't like you for whatever reason. You remind them of somebody or, you know, they don't like your sports team, whatever it might be. So when you do run up against that brick wall, for whatever reason, I think you have to realize that, realize that it's kind of a, a wall that you can't get through. And let me caveat that. You can always get through, but sometimes it might be easier to go to plan B and have someone else on your team, whether they're, they're a peer or someone else on your team who, you know, more junior than you, they might be able to establish that rapport in a stronger way and achieve the goals on your team's behalf. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of over the last of my work over the last couple of years, and obviously I have a ton of flaws just like anyone else does, but I have been able to to notice and be aware if I'm just not resonating with somebody like I, I'm hoping to, and maybe they resonate better with one of my teammates. And so then it, it's time for me to just step aside and get out of the way at that point. And I think that's a really important sort of skill to have. And it speaks to the emotional intelligence that you talked about. So that's really important. So let's circle back to that. I think I can tee up a question for us next that sort of brings that into focus just a little bit more. But uh, before I do that, any other tactics that you want to cover? You know, I think we could go on and on, but as you and I discussed before the episode, I think this is something that we probably can't all hit in one. So, uh, you know, as far as the how-to series, we can circle back. But I think for an initial one, we hit the key points. Okay. Let me just add one more, if you don't mind, and then let me know what your thoughts are on this. And if you have any commentary here, the other one that comes to mind at the top of the list is being a great storyteller. I think no matter what expert knowledge you have, no matter how much credibility you have, it can all be for naught if you're not communicating effectively. So this is obviously connected with knowing your audience, which we've talked about, gauging their level of expertise, and then I think modifying you know, your language accordingly. I think that's something that we struggle with as intelligence practitioners sometimes, especially when we come from different agencies or different organizations where we're used to speaking a certain language or a certain lexicon. So we just have to be mindful of that. I don't believe in dumbing things down. I, I really don't believe that. I think if they don't understand it, it's a me problem and not a them problem. So you have to, I think, go back to the drawing board and figure that out. But some obvious advice that we've all been given over the years in terms of avoiding technical terms or jargon, just be careful of that. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's important to demystify the content of the message we're delivering. Because again, we can get wrapped up in the passion around 
some of these topics and subject matter areas that we've been maybe thinking about or, or looking at for years. And so, you know, I think we just need to be mindful of that as well. Yeah, and I agree. I think storytelling is critical. And as a, you know, as we were prepping for our episode with James Tunkey, I, I, I commented that he was really good at metaphors. And you know, I think if you can if you can tailor a good metaphor to your audience, it really resonates with them. And uh, you know, the only caveat I'll say is it's, it's a double edged sword in the sense where you know you can't give a an American cultural metaphor to someone from a, another culture that might not have any idea what you're talking about. So, you know, I think, you know, metaphors are super powerful. You just have to make sure that it's tailored to the person you're speaking to. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. Okay. So let's talk about emotional intelligence. You touched on this a moment ago, and I think it's worth circling back to. So essentially what I heard you say was that in order to be persuasive, it's critical that you understand how you're being perceived by others at all times. And so I want to know very quickly, are you willing to do a short exercise with me right here, right now? <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> sure, why not? Okay. We, we don't have to go through it all the way, but let's, let's just walk through this because I think this is something that people could use. I think it could be useful and it, it can be fun too. So, so for everyone listening, here's a little exercise that I think anyone can do to better understand how you're being perceived and thus work on being a little bit more persuasive. So the idea here is this, you know, everybody try to think of three traits or descriptions of how you want to be perceived and jot those down. And so, Michael, we'll do this here in a second. But the next part of your homework is to go out really and to, to find the answers um, in terms of how others see you. And you can do that in a variety of ways. I mean, just a normal coffee chat. Maybe you have some sort of feedback mechanism um, within your organization where you get feedback from others. And the idea here is to ask others what their answers would be and just see if there's a difference or two. And then you start asking yourself, why is there a gap? And subsequently, how would you reconcile those things to be seen as a practitioner you want to be seen as? And for those of you that might be thinking, well, this might be an unpleasant exercise. Maybe I don't want to hear that. Maybe the reality that others have compared to what my reality is problematic. And I, I just, I don't want to hear about it, but I would just urge everyone to, to embrace that feedback, you know, be grateful for that feedback. It's really, really important because at the end of the day, it is, it's critical to understand how others perceive you. So if, if you're not being perceived how you want to be, you can change it. So Michael, let's play this real quick. I'm going to put you on the spot. And I, I know you haven't thought about this at all, but give me three traits of how you would like to be perceived by others. Okay. How I want to be perceived by others. Yeah. Okay. I would say without giving too much thought, loyal, trustworthy, and reliable. Loyal, trustworthy, and reliable. Okay. Those are really, really worthy traits. I think for me... I'd like to be seen as credible. I'd like to be seen as a, a leader and I would like to be seen as trustworthy as well. I, I like that one. So 
it's really easy, right? It's, I mean, in the matter of seconds, the first three things that popped into our heads. Now what we need to do is just go back out, get some feedback. And, you know, we already agreed before this episode that we, we would do a follow-up on this one. So the next time we reconvene on this topic, let's share with everyone what we found out. And if we need to reconcile the differences, let's talk about how we did that or what approaches we're going to take to do that. So does that sound good? It does, but I think we need a sample size. You know, you never know. Like, <laughs> depends what kind of mood uh, my wife's in. She might not say I'm reliable. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- yeah, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't count her. Maybe it's just people at, at work in your uh, just kidding <laughs> in your intel roles. So. No, no, I like it. That's definitely a uh, homework, and we'll follow up on it. Cause I, again, I think this is an important uh, subject. We'll have to circle back to. Okay, good stuff. All right. So when we kick things off, I know we talked about the idea that sometimes the, the word persuasion itself has a negative connotation. And so we, we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about that quite yet. So the first or the next question, excuse me, I have for you is, you know, what are some of the pitfalls do you think of, of trying to become a more persuasive practitioner? Or maybe the better way to frame this is what are some things that could impede or might be counterproductive to persuasion? I think from personal experience and from doing research here, you know, I I think the worst one is viewing persuasion or negotiation in general as kind of a combat sport, you know, trying to, I think you made a good, you made a good analogy to, you know, looking at it like you're in a trial, some high powered trial, you know, Johnny Depp and, uh, you know, his wife, like, you know, winner take all. I, I think when you try to go about it that way, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure, you know, not, and, you know, obviously not just you, but your team and whatever goal you're trying to achieve. So it's really critical to, you know, I alluded to early, but, you know, I, I could think of a time in a very, very tense, high risk environment where I had to go negotiate and, you know, persuade literally someone to give us resources and support in an area where where my team needed access, but we didn't have it naturally. So we really need to rely on somebody. I sat down with uh, their their uh, team lead, and you know the first thing he said to me is, uh, "Why should I deal with you when your team has just done nothing but do me wrong and, and screw me over, for lack of a better word, in the past?" So you know the way I approached that was I was completely transparent. That was that was kind of my mindset going in there. I, I acknowledged that there had been difficulties between our teams in the past, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't my situation because I, I was new and I really wanted to rebuild the relationship, you know, apologize for things that had went wrong in the past and, you know, really, really kind of tried to establish my credibility and reliability and say, Hey, you know, we're, I'm looking at this as a team, like we should work together. Here's what I'm going to need from you. I understand it's a bit of a sacrifice, but you know, if you're willing to give here, I can try to see some ways where I can help you. And then it, it was a back and forth, but you know, I think uh, long story short, it was that transparency and just going in without the hard sell that set us up for success in the long run. Great. I think that's excellent. So you mentioned transparency a couple of times, and I know that before we hit record, we were talking about some of our greatest lessons learned and trying to become more persuasive. So is there any way you have a minute just to recap some of your greatest lessons learned? I think transparency was one, certainly you just hit on it. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned active listening. There might be one more, but I'll just turn it over to you to 
to just sort of recap your your greatest lessons learned and trying to become more persuasive? Yeah, I think you have to, again, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, I, th I think as uh, we go to different professional organizations and groups and webinars, I think authenticity, it's kind of become one of these words, it's a bit of a cliche, everyone says it, it you know, you have to check the box where, you know, I, I think we're overlooking the importance of authenticity. And I think transparency and authenticity are, are tied in a lot of ways, like you really have to go into a negotiation where you're, especially when you're trying to persuade somebody that you're putting all the cards on the table, and you want to work together. You also want to resist compromise. I think sometimes, you know, and, and to some of our audience who might be more introverted and, and don't like direct conflict, sometimes it's easy to say, you know what, I'm just going to compromise. I'll, I'll give the other party what they want and I'll figure things out later. But what ends up happening the majority of times is one gets buyer's remorse. They feel a bit of shame because they didn't reach their own team's goals. So rather than looking at the short-term thing of, hey, I don't want to have any conflict with the other party, you know, really do yourself and your team justice. And that's kind of how you build credibility with your counterpart as well. So for the long term, don't compromise. I also think like, you know, again, you have to kind of push yourself to have great arguments. You know, I think, uh, you know, if you're a lawyer by trade or education, you know, I think, you know, you've, you've kind of been educated on how to establish arguments and certain people in the intelligence community have as well. But, you know, if it's something that you're not comfortable with, there are ways to learn it, whether it's to go to Toastmasters or different, different resources that are out there just to get yourself more comfortable, you know, not only public speaking, but creating arguments. And again, even argument has such a dirty connotation where the reality is it's just a way to explain your it's basically a way to articulate your pers what you're trying to persuade and, and to negotiate. And I think another thing that you really have to focus on, the last one I'll hit, because I know it's kind of a laundry list, but I think a lot of people sometimes look at uh, persuasion as kind of a used car sales deal. Like it's a one-time deal. I just got to get through this. I'll get whatever I can. I'll make some promises and then I'll kind of run off because I don't have to deal with it again. Where, you know, you're burning a bridge that you really probably are going to have to cross multiple times, especially if it's an internal stakeholder, but even if it's external. So, you know, you really don't want to go for the one-shot effort. You want to go for a long-term establishment where you can work together in the future. So don't, don't make it so transactional, especially exactly. within your organization. Yeah. Because those relationships matter and you want to maintain them. And okay. I appreciate that. I think those are all great lessons learned and, and things that we can apply from my perspective. I'll just mention a couple of things. I think the first that comes to mind for me is to be patient and play the long game. We talked about some of the important tactics to, to be more persuasive. One was to, you know, really sort of focus on relationships and, you know, the fact that it, it might take time to build some credibility, to build a track record of credibility. So it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. So just be patient, play the long game. The second one that comes to mind for me is, and I know this sounds defeatist, but I think you do have to know when to give up and move on. You have to think about the return on investment that you're making and all this time and effort, you know, invested in trying to, to persuade somebody. So just be aware of that. It's okay to be persistent, but just sort of maintain constant awareness on when it might be time to just walk away and focus your efforts elsewhere because you're going to get a better return on investment. And then the third thing, this is one that I've learned sort of the hard way over time. And I'm, I'm really trying to take this to heart is don't take it personal. 
you know, if you realize you can't persuade somebody 99 times out of a hundred, it's not personal. It's just business. That's just the way it goes. And for whatever reason, you might just come up against an immovable, immovable object and that's okay. You just can't take it personal. See what you can learn from it. See if there's any way that you can maybe adapt and overcome, but it's just all business at the end of the day. So don't take it personal. You'll be better off if you sort of view it that way, I think. So those are just some thoughts from my end. So, yeah, no, I would just say, uh, Ryan, that's critical. Um, you know, my friend, former boss who may or may not be listening, we'll just call him Joe. I went into a negotiation where I was trying to persuade we'll call it seven different teams, different interagency teams. And the one that I did not get by on was, was one of my DOD counterparts, ironically. And I really kind of got hung up on the axle on the axle for a couple of days. And I just kept trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, if all these other organizations and the embassy and international partners, if they all see it this way and I see it this way, it's just this one person is the roadblock. And my friend slash boss Joe brought up the point like, hey, you know what, this is, we're just going to get bogged down in the weeds. You know, we really need to just like fire and forget. We got to go somewhere else now. Like we, we can do this. It's just, we're going to waste too much time and energy trying to win over this one person. And, you know, in hindsight, it was really good lessons learned because, you know, I, I was kind of in that situation, I was definitely mission focused where the reality was the mission was better off served going somewhere else to try this. Yeah, I really love that. I know, And I know we've talked about one of the next how-to episodes is going to be around, you know, how to effectively conduct stakeholder mapping and analysis. And within that framework, the idea of identifying blockers. So, you know, you ran into a blocker and you, you realized that and you also realized maybe it's just time to look in a different direction. So I think that's something we can incorporate into the, to the next how-to episode. So I, I love that point. So Listen, why don't we start to wrap it up? You know, we talked about that exercise. We went through that little exercise that everyone can use. We talked about a number of tactics. We know it's not the the be-all, end-all list, but things that we've experienced personally, either lessons learned the hard way or things that we've experienced that have allowed us to be successful. But what are some additional resources that listeners can utilize to become more persuasive risk and intelligence practitioners? And I think you you hit on a couple. So let me just start by naming a couple of these uh, as a recap. Number one, the article that we mentioned at the very beginning that served as the inspiration for this was called The Art of Persuasion Hasn't Changed in 2000 Years by Carmine Gallo. If you search that, you'll, you'll find it right away. It's Harvard Business Review, I think July 2019. Another one I wanted to add is something called the six principles of persuasion. So this is where psychologists recognize six characteristics of persuasion. This was originally identified by Robert Cialdini, PhD in 1984. These essentially describe what makes persuasive messages influential and successful. I think it's, it's really worth taking a look at. And some efforts at persuasion may use several of these tactics simultaneously. So I think you can really incorporate some of those um, into your tradecraft, if you will. And then I know the next one is one of your all-time favorites. There's no way we could have this list without it. So How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. So I know you're shaking your head. You love that one. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's kind of a time of class, timeless classic for Intel professionals, especially those coming from the human background. And, uh, you know, 
I always kind of laugh. Some of the anecdotes they provide are from the early 1900s, but you know, if you kind of see past that, then you know the the principles remain timeless. And you know, we always joke around. It's good to read that book because you don't want to be the f- person that loses friends and alienates people. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> another, uh, I'll just throw out. I think I mentioned it earlier. Two others I'd like to mention are getting to yes, which is it's a collaborative effort with William. Uri being one of the authors. And then uh, he did two follow-on books, including uh, Getting Past No, Negotiating in Difficult Situations. And I mean, if you read those books, they're, they're super easy to read. And you know, I just find myself highlighting a lot of stuff because they're making so many great points where you just think, you know, even if it's your day-to-day life, wow, it's such a great idea. If I could just incorporate that more, I think I'd be winning. And I think that last name is spelled U-R-Y, William correct. Uri, correct? Okay. Okay, good. So yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, that's five. Yeah, let's see if I can do my math. That is five resources plus the exercise. So hopefully there's some some tools that people can use. So listen, I, I appreciate the time. I know persuasion has been a central tenet of, of not only your job, but your success over the last few years. I can't think of a better person to talk to about this. So thanks for sharing your insights on this how-to episode. I want to give you sort of the final word on this. So any any alibis or final thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I think I'd be uh, remiss not to provide my favorite metaphor that, you know, when I was a young intelligence officer, I was super motivated, and I had to go try to persuade a very senior, a very senior leader to share some of his resources. And a very senior kind of elder statesman in my office asked me what I was doing. I explained I was going to try to persuade this other team to share resources. And uh, he asked me if I was a car person. And I said, yes. And he said, what's your favorite car? I said, well, you know, if all things being equal, I'd love a Ferrari. And he said, okay, well, when you enter this negotiation, you're trying to persuade them, just remember that you want your red Ferrari, but if you end up with a yellow Honda and it drives good, then that's a win. And I, I kind of scratched my head and thought about it. But, you know, when you really kind of break that down, you know, his point was that for what we we needed our team to accomplish was basically to get to point A to point B. So that's what we had to negotiate on our side. It didn't really matter how we got there. I mean, of course, there was like how we wanted to get there, but we needed to get there. So it was important to go in with what we wanted, put our best foot forward. And then within that metaphor, the other team said, there's no way you're getting a Ferrari. You're not even getting a car. And then as we kind of negotiated and persuaded them on how things should work out, ultimately, you know, I definitely walked away with a middle ground. I'm not sure if it was a, a yellow Honda Accord, definitely wasn't a Ferrari, <laughs> but the reality is we accomplished our goal and it was a, a beneficial relationship, opened new doors and, you know, years, years going forward, our two teams were still working together. Okay. I love that. I think that's a great way to end. So thanks everyone for listening. Please let us know what you think. You know, what are your experiences? What are your tactics on how you're effectively persuasive? Let us know on our business of intelligence, LinkedIn page. We'd love to hear from you. We've got a number of new episodes coming up. We can't wait to share those with you, including multiple how-to episodes. So until next time, take care. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Be safe.